a lot of my aviation training, I think, works really well as an entrepreneur um, because in both cases, you're basically trying not to die the whole time, right? And so you have to use a lot of the same strategies. And um, basically, well, the main thing that they teach you in naval aviation, well, they don't really teach you. They kind of test you to make sure that you figure it out fast enough, um, is you know, how to process a lot of information very quickly and get to the most important things first, right? Um, because when you're falling out of the sky, you don't have time to spend time figuring out what's happening to the aircraft. You have to kind of identify the problems immediately and fix or save yourself. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders, game-changing influencers, and next-level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your host, CEO and founder of Energy to Perform, international speaker and leadership performance coach, Craig Johns. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, we speak with a design thinking professional who makes cool products, starts movements, and changes behavior. Our guest has a zest for launching multiple businesses in challenging environments, having lived and been an entrepreneur in more than 10 countries, including Bulgaria, Ghana, Jordan, Egypt, and currently the USA. He has studied a BA East Asian Studies from the Vanderbilt University and has an MBA in Business Administration and General Management at the London Business School. His career commenced as a US, Naval, uh, US Navy Naval Aviator and a Division Chief for the US European Command before moving out of the Defence Forces to become an independent consultant, CEO of Viamel Limited, Director of Innovation Coexist Foundation, Principal of Mandaleo Ventures, and is currently the CEO and founder of True Master Foods. Are honored and privileged to introduce a former Seahawk helicopter pilot on counter narcotics missions, business mentor and judge of the MIT Enterprise Forum of the Pan Arab region, Abraham Kamak. Abraham, welcome to the show. Hi, Craig. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So you're born in, the U, uh, born in Washington, D.C. What was life like growing up on the East Coast of America? Um, I mean, it was a long time ago, but because just to date myself. Um, but <clears throat> it was a great place to grow up. Um, I you know, grew up in the D.C. metro area and in Brooklyn, New York. We split our time. Um, when I was 10, we moved from the D.C. metro area to Brooklyn. And then when I was 16, we moved back to to Maryland, which is a suburb of, uh, uh, Washington, DC. And I finished high school there. Um, it's great cause it was very, um, for America at the time in the eighties and, um, you know, kind of early nineties, it was very diverse areas to live in. So we, I grew up in very diverse areas, um, lots of different cultures, lots of different types of people. Um, and, uh, we also, um, had lots of different food all the time too. So, you know, um, that, you know, helped spur my passion for food all the time. It's a, my, you know, one of my parents, you know, I was imbued with a, um, cooking gene very early on from my mom with, uh, her Southern Italian, um, influence, you know, so I grew up uh, cooking Sicilian dishes, um, very early on, uh, in my, in my household. And, um, 
my father's side of the family is very much more, um, even though he's very mixed background, his culinary background is very uh, southern uh, Virginian or kind of West, uh, southern Virginian, so very ham, you know, pork-based uh, meals, things like that. His uh, grandma was a famous cook um, in the area, and uh, when people would ask her what her uh, secret is, she would always say butter. So. <laughs> Um, but yeah, but then besides that, you know, we, I grew up around El Salvadorian cooking all the time. Um, uh, we had El Salvadorian food all the time, constantly, uh, Chinese food, um, you know, everything you can imagine that was, you know, in the area at the time. So it's very, now it's even much more diverse, this area, now that we live back here in Alexandria, um, <clears throat> than it was when I was growing up. But for the time in the U.S., it was, it was pretty amazing. So with that kind of diverse background and an area you're living in. Did you dream of traveling the world as a teenager or did you have some other big idea you wanted to solve? I think the key is that I you know I never really knew what I wanted to do when I grew up and even when I grew up I didn't know what I wanted to do and so that's <laughs> kind of the problem right near um I spent a lot of my 30s trying to figure that out and uh, you know it's not that I necessarily wanted to live all over the world like I had some travel bug it's just that I I wanted to get out and experience life as much as possible and to, you know, experience new things. And with the globalization that was happening in the 2000s and stuff like that, uh, I, it just was a natural fit to get out there. Um, I lived overseas after my tours with the Navy as a civilian for, you know, seven, eight years. Part of it was on accident because there was, it was the global recession. So there was, you know, that was just, um, there weren't any jobs in the U.S. at the time, things like this. So we ended up going overseas and then just staying there for a while. Um, and you know, part of it was just this, you know, passion to try to see and do different things. Um, so it wasn't you know necessarily focused on any one country or anything like that. We were just, I was just really interested in everything, and so everything sounded exciting. You know, anywhere sounded exciting. So. We're all very curious and make mistakes and, and learn a number of lessons when we're young. Are there any sort of key lessons or key, is there a key lesson you learned that sort of stands out from you from your early days? There's a couple of different lessons I like to, to learn, but um, I mean, I think the, the, the most important one that we were ta I was taught um, early on, it was kind of a family mantra, it was, uh, you know, moderation in all things, including moderation. Um, my grandfather used to say that, and I think he obviously stole it from Oscar Wilde. Um, I, I thought it was my grandfather saying for the longest time until I realized Oscar Wilde had said it first. Um, uh, you know, not to get uh, too deep into yourself or not to get too far into one line of thinking. Um, my grandfather also pushed this idea of uh, being a fox and not a hedgehog, um, which is, you know, the two animals that survive in uh, it was a long there's a long story behind that saying but there's a, you know, the, the general idea is there's two animals that survive very well in the fox and the hedgehog and the fox survives by knowing lots of different things and being able to do anything and the hedgehog survives by just doing one thing really 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 well and um, if you think of it from a perspective of human thinking or the way you get into it you know the hedgehog can do extremely well in one environment, but as soon as that environment changes, you know, they're screwed. While the fox, um, you know, has pretty much an equal chance of surviving in almost any survive in any environment. Mm. And so that's, we <clears throat> kind of 
taken that as kind of a life mantra and, and gone forward with it. Yeah, I like it. I like the analogy. Well, what was your why behind joining the US Navy? Um, I, I wanted to join the military because I, from an early age, um, basically from the beginning of high school, I think, because I just did, I did not want to go into an office job. Um, I think my dad was a lawyer. He wasn't around a lot when I was a kid. And when he was, he was in a terrible mood all the time. And, uh, it's just, I think that swayed me in one way of like, you know, wanting to avoid that type of life, um, and wanting to do more. And the idea of, you know, you have this one life, this one chance to get out there. And, you know, one of the easiest ways to do something with it early on is to, to do something like join the Navy, right. Or join any type of defense force or military service. Um, I picked the Navy mainly because, you know, I've always kind of grown up on the coast, um, near the ocean, things like this. And so I was, you know, just lean towards you know, being stationed someplace like uh, Florida, California, vice, you know, Oklahoma. So, and, uh, and for the longest time, you know, the Navy was the one that was deploying constantly because the Navy deploys during peacetime while the, you know, up until the Iraq war, their army never went anywhere, you know, so. Yeah, right. so, so many children dream of flying helicopters. So how did the opportunity to fly counter narcotics missions come about? Uh, I mean, when you're going, when you're a naval officer, you have, there's, and uh, what we call in the Navy, in the US Navy, we have, uh, and I'm pretty sure it's probably very similar in the Australian Navy or anywhere else, um, the Commonwealth, we have, you, if you're going through one of the commissioning, main commissioning programs, you have to become a line officer, which means you have to be um, what is technically a warfighter. And those are either you're on a ship, which is a surface warfare officer, you're an aviator, um, or you're on a submarine, um, or you're a special warfare. And um, by the time I graduated college, um, I did not feel like I, I was always in very good shape and worked out a lot. And like early on, I thought maybe special warfare might be the thing I wanted to do. But I, by the time I graduated from college, I was after four years of playing rugby and you know, getting beat up and stuff like that. I was like done getting up early or trying to work hard, you know, that way. So I was, uh, not wanting to go special warfare. Um, surface warfare seems like a very uh, stressful life and aviation had mandatory crew rest and you got to wear really cool uniforms. So, you know, it was a no brainer. So what were some of the key performance strategies utilized to be able to remain calm, composed and focused during very complex and high pressure situations? This is a great question. I think um, a lot of my aviation training, I think, works really well as an entrepreneur um, because in both cases, you're basically trying not to die the whole time, right? <laughs> and so you have to use a lot of the same strategies. And um, basically, well, the main thing that they teach you in naval aviation, well, they don't really teach you. They kind of test you to make sure that you figure it out fast enough um, is you know, how to process a lot of information very quickly and get to the most important things first, right? Um, because when you're falling out of the sky, you don't have time to spend time figuring out what's happening to the aircraft. You have to kind of identify the problems immediately and fix or save yourself. And and that doesn't mean, you know, you have to think quickly or be super smart or anything like that. What it, what it really means is kind of um, 
what we used to call uh, ANC, aviate, navigate, communicate. So it was like, you know, focus first on just getting the aircraft stable, steady, things like this, then figure out where you're going and then talk to people, right? And it's kind of the same thing in business when you're starting a new company, there's a million things to do. Like there's so many things to do, you can't even possibly look at it and everybody's trying to give you more things to do and everybody's trying to talk to you about stuff. And you still just gotta aviate, navigate, communicate. You gotta stay in the sky, you know, keep the, air, keep the aircraft going, figure out where you're going, and then you can start talking to people. So, you know, don't get on Twitter, first thing. That's not the primary thing you need to be doing, right? You need to be keeping the, air, the business and in, in, uh, moving. Um, <clears throat> so that's, you know, that's, I've used that to try to, you know, maneuver through that kind of lesson of like, you know, staying in the air, figure out where you're going, then talk is to, as, a, as a method to keep going. Um, and the other thing that we always learned in, when you're flying fixed wing, because um, in Navy flight school, we all flew fixed wing aircraft, so planes first before we split off into different sections. And <clears throat> when you're flying fixed wing, they tell you that, you know, airspeed is life and altitude is life insurance. And so kind of and when you're a startup, you know, sales is life and cash is life insurance. Right. So <clears throat> if, when you have. Uh, so as long as you keep bringing sales in and sales keep going up, you can survive almost anything because investors will always want to give you more money if sales are going up and things are looking good. Right. And, um, almost, I mean, I'm generalizing, but it, that's usually the case. And then, um, you know, cash is the more cash you have or the cash capability you have, the better you can survive, um, making mistakes. Yeah. Right. Same thing if you you know if you're flying if you're flying nap of the earth and you're really close to the you know you're only fifty feet or a couple hundred feet off the ground you make a mistake bam you're you're a pancake right but if you um, you're up at a couple thousand feet you know you can make a lot of mistakes and recover for them before you hit the ground right and so cash is kind of like that for you too um, uh, you know and so while everybody criticizes a lot of the Silicon Valley entrepreneurs right now for taking for getting you know um, uh, pate stuffed, you know, getting tons of cash stuffed into them and things like this. Um, you know, I, if I were in their situation, I would take the money too, because it just gives you so much more leeway to know that you're not going to fail. You know, yeah. it's really hard to fail when you, it's really easy to fail when you only have a few thousand dollars in the bank or a hundred thousand dollars in the bank. When you've got, you know, a hundred million, a couple hundred million in the bank, it's really, really hard to fail as a business. Um, so, uh, it's, and really, that's what we worry about as entrepreneurs more and more. And that is, you know, we don't care about the perception of the thing. Is like you worry more about um, making sure that this doesn't fail, that your baby doesn't die. You know. So we're talking about there, the, you know, the defense industry has some of the best leadership development in the way they are structured. So you know, we've just talked about the high pressure situation. Then, is there anything else that you have found from being a naval? aviator that has provided some really invaluable skills as a both a senior executive and now as an entrepreneur uh yeah i mean the these are the as the entrepreneur i mean the, those lessons i went over before are, are very key you know how to stay alive how to prioritize a lot of information there's there's always and the other thing that we learned early on as an aviator um is and again whether you're a senior executive or you're an entrepreneur there's always too much information and too much to do um and so you got to realize you know what's going to kill you right 
and focus on what's going to kill you first, right? As as a pilot, especially as a helicopter pilot. So and realize sometimes it's the small things, right? Um, so while some things may seem super important, um, I mean everybody's freaking out about them. You know, if you put it off for X amount of time, like is it going to kill you? And what what is going to kill you? Like the you know getting the product wrong, you know that's going to kill you, right? That you know getting a little bit of media wrong like your 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 a marketing message slightly off or something like is not going to kill you necessarily or not getting it out is not going to kill you you know the product being off the um missing the sales uh call that's the stuff that's going to kill you um and it's just like when we are in an aircraft um and a, you have as an officer you've got you know capabilities you have an uh, you have a job in the squadron or in the detachment when you're deployed of what you're going to what you need to do every day and you've got to fly and fly your missions and you've got to realize you know what's the most important thing the most important things are what's going to kill you um, and we do it throughout the squadron like the most important thing uh, one of the most important things with the tool program in the um, <clears throat> which means every tool in the squadron um, had to be accounted for exactly right. So if one little screwdriver went missing, the entire flight line would shut down and nobody would fly. Because that one screwdriver, if it gets in the wrong place, it would it could kill everybody, right? Kill an you know, kill an entire aircrew and bring an aircraft down. Um, so that is um, so that's the kind of thing you gotta figure out about your business. What are these things that are gonna kill you? What's your tool program? You know, what is it that's gonna kill you and how do you make sure that that's the most important part of your business? So working in the Navy is quite a, a really unique community and, and way of living and, and working. Was it a big challenge or what was the biggest challenge for you as you transitioned out of the Navy? Um, I think the big challenge for me transitioning out of the Navy was, uh, well, the, was the fact that I left in 2008 and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, I was not prepared. Um, I just finished an executive MBA at London Business School, so I thought I was, you know, super well prepared for getting out into the world, but I wasn't because I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't have a plan. Um, I didn't prepare myself right well. I just thought, you know, I'll get out. I have an MBA now. People will hire me, right? And uh, the MBA programs, um, to be in my own defense, even though it's really my fault, the MBA programs do like build it up like, oh, you guys are going to be the best and everybody's going to want to hire you. And that's not really always the case. They, they're graduating thousands and even from the top programs are graduating thousands of people every year. Um, and <clears throat> I also to make it worse, I, I got out of the military in 2008 and we were in London. It's, you know, the, that was like the epicenter of the, of the global recession. Um, nobody was going to hire somebody with eight years of military experience, MBA or not, you know? So it was, um, that was the challenge. The challenge was I was not prepared. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't prepare myself. Um, and it was really hard to go from having an identity every day of knowing what you did and that you getting a paycheck no matter what. And, uh, saying being always always able to say what you did and what you know what your job was to all of a sudden not having anything and um i think that's from i think when you if you end up in that situation um i think the the right thing to do is just to embrace it and like be like like i'm in between jobs right now um because i probably missed out on some opportunities by like being afraid to ask for people people for help or and that was a big problem too coming out of the military into the civilian world like that it was like 
you're not used to asking people for help like that. Mm -hmm. And you're supposed to know what to do all the time, especially as an officer. And um, so I was afraid to ask people for help or to ask for, or to be able to say I didn't know in those situations, in that particular situation, and uh, or that I didn't know what I was doing. Um, and I think that hurt me, like I, I, that made me flounder for a little while before really kind of finding my way again, so. So your first kind of work after that was around doing innovation <clears throat> consulting, but you managed to go into IT and website capital investment space. Was that just something that popped up or did that sort of, did that perk your curiosity at the time? Yeah, I mean, I think those, those years after the military, I kind of just jumped around into everything and anything that came up. Um, I had real trouble saying no, and uh, I had too much, uh, I had too much energy and too much capability. I mean, um, I think the problem is like when you were as like high energy and as high, um, you're as high energy as I was and as ambitious as I was, like there were just too many opportunities. And the core for doing well in business as a startup too is you got to learn to say no when you got to focus on one thing, one project for a while. And <clears throat> so I think that's a, um, that was a real problem for me. Um, a, um, I got to do some great things. A lot of the things really worked out pretty well. Some of them were, I just got to learn a lot. It was really exciting learning all these different things. Um, you know, so, I mean, part of it was, you know, we moved around the, uh, the other thing was that we were moving around in, uh, merchant markets. And when we, we moved to Doha, Qatar, um, where we lived for three years, which is actually, um, I, I worked in Jordan and Lebanon and Egypt and stuff like that, but we were living in Qatar at the time. Um, <clears throat> the stuff that was happening in 2010, 2011 in the Middle East, I mean, it was looking like it was the next renaissance, right, for the Middle East at the time. Because the Arab Spring was happening, the Arab Spring was being driven by entrepreneurs, there was so much entrepreneurial energy there, and so it was just so exciting to try to jump into everything you could, and so I would jump onto every project, and I never said no to anybody who wanted me to do anything, and, um, I, and there were so many opportunities because you're like, well, here was the Middle East that had nothing, uh, you know, as far as like websites or infrastructure or even agriculture. And we were, they were like, oh, there's so much job opportunity, you know, so, so many startup opportunities here, like that you get into and, and that, you know, can easily sink you trying to chase too many things at one time. So, um, <clears throat> it's good. So during those, you know, the stints through those late 2000s and early 2010s, did you kind of find that you, were finding it challenging to work for other people versus working for yourself. Did you find a difference there? Yeah, I think it was. Um, it could be challenging for me to work for other people because, again, because of my energy and my you know excitement to do things. Because every time I started something, whether it's a project, you know, um, consulting project, or just like um, working on a startup with somebody, I was always like. 10 times more high energy than everybody else and like ready to do things. And that meant I was going like at a hundred miles an hour when everybody else was just kind of going like at you know 20 miles an hour. And that also meant that I was, I, I couldn't wait for people and like I would get impatient and I would get impetuous and I would start doing things and everybody would be like, what the hell are you doing? Why are you doing this? And that's off. Like we don't want it that way. Um, and so I got and so I would always end up in those situations where I would get too impetuous and try to push push something forward before it was ready to go forward. You know what I mean? Um, I just wanted, you know, I was, I was way too high high energy at the time. 
Um, I think that one of the things that's helped me with True Made Foods, um, with my new food startup that I've been doing for the last four years, is you know, now kind of being in my, um, you know, I started True Made Foods at 38 years old, um, I have four kids, um, I just don't have that energy anymore, you know? <laughs> um, I mean, I have the energy to keep this going because it is like, it's, it saps you. Um, but like, I, I, I am totally happy just doing one thing and I have no, no desire to try to jump into multiple projects or try to do something on the side or, you know, I am trying to make it move as fast as possible. That is, that is what I am trying to do, but, um, I am a little bit, but I'm also a lot more patient and understanding, um, things like that too. So. So before we really delve into true made foods, just a couple <clears throat> more things here. So can you share a moment that really resonates for you in working with different cultures where you may not always be able to speak the language? Uh, yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a great uh, question. I mean, I feel like I almost have too many examples of that to, to build through to pick one. Um, probably won't I, what's gonna happen I'm gonna get off the podcast and I'll think of like 20 others so it'll probably be better than the one I bring up um, I, in Doha um, we set up a company where I would my partner was actually a um, a 27 uh, year old Qatari uh, lady so uh, Qatari lady um, so she was uh, fantastic the, the women in Qatar and most of the Gulf countries the Haliji countries in uh, our uh, much more ambitious than the men and much usually better educated and working harder and things like this you find. And so, um, much, much more of a pleasure to work with, um, <clears throat> along that much more forward thinking too. And, um, yeah, there, there were all kinds of slight conflicts with that. And I think one of the problems was, um, that we, and one, the only time we really argued or got into real, got into things with, one, I was always, you know, like I explained before, very impetuous. I'd be moving forward too fast and on things. And the second would be, um, you know, I was in Doha as a visitor, as somebody who is not going to be there forever um, and just trying to make the, the most of my time there. And, you know, that was her home. And it's a tenuous political situation. And I think we take this for granted in, you know, some of the free countries that we live in. Um, where I mean, not tenuous political situation—that's a bad word—but like, it's it's a monarchy, right? And as free as it seems, sometimes it's not, right? You know, there, and it's also a very small country where everybody knows each other, and family reputations are very important. Um, and you know, I think as an American, as a brash American, it was hard for me trying to be entrepreneurial and be a disruptor, and not to call out some of the BS that you would see happening and stuff like this. And she would get very upset with me sometimes on that. Cause there was some, if I took it too far, because she's like, you know, I have to live here for the rest of my life. This is my home. My family lives here. I don't need to be making enemies or having people upset at me or holding grudges against me and things like this. Um, you know, and I think that's something that we, you know, we forget about, um, as, uh, you know, people who are more global-minded or or not or um, or come from uh, much freer countries with much more freedom of speech and you know less of a uh, a caste system in place. So we we forget that you know people are there even if things look very modern. There is sometimes there is a subtle context that we need to be sensitive to that drives people's behavior. Mm. So we go back to at the beginning. You talked a lot about 
culinary foods, etc., and, and lots of different styles. But I believe that sauce, as we get it off the shelf, may not be something that you really enjoy. So how did true made foods come about? Yeah, I mean, if you thought I was, if you told me six years ago I would be running a ketchup company, I would have told you I was crazy. You were crazy. Um, but it's actually fantastic. I absolutely love it. Um, I actually came about because I hate ketchup. Um, I think, like, true made foods, we make a healthy ketchup. We make a, a ketchup made out of vegetables instead of sugar, um, regular ketchup. Even, you know, in, in the U.S., it's expe- exceptionally bad because the, the regular ketchup is loaded with corn syrup. But in uh, even <clears throat> overseas and in with our natural ketchups that don't have corn syrup, the sugar content is huge. Like a 20-ounce bottle has a quarter pound of sugar in it. Um, it has more ketchup, has more sugar than ice cream, ounce per ounce, if you break it down. Um, you know, a tablespoon has the serving size is four grams of sugar, which is more than a chocolate chip cookie, an average chocolate chip cookie. So, you know, it's, it's basically red candy. And um, I've always known that and I've hated ketchup for it and always try to avoid it. And um, then, but then, you know, you have kids and, you know, you have these dreams of not having ketchup in your household because you're going to be that kind of parent who's, you know, so much better and, you know, feeding your kids so much better. And the reality hits you in the face and the kids love ketchup and they want ketchup on everything and they won't eat their dinner unless they put ketchup on it. And, you know, they're like licking it off the plate and you're just like dying. And so <clears throat> that kind of and so around the same time that I started this, like I had just done a coffee project for Coexist. So I kind of learned the food industry or I thought I had learned the food industry. And so this everything kind of lined up for me to want to start my own food company and i saw this as a real challenge in in america and i thought you know, nobody has really disrupted ketchup yet um the startups the you know the few people that have tried they just made um really bad tasting ketchups the kind of thing that like if you're a grown-up and you're like wanted to eat healthy you might buy that ketchup but the kids were never going to eat right so i want to make a healthy ketchup that kids would eat and uh that naturally led to better for you bar- barbecue sauces because it's you know the same challenge in barbecue and I feel passionate about how barbecue could be a very healthy and it's a wonderful thing that brings families and communities together and it's terrible that it's ruined and turned into a poison by these barbecue sauces that are nothing but sugar um, and uh, so I wanted to make this better solution there and you know I partnered with the pitmaster there so that we could have some real authenticity behind it and get some real authentic recipes in. And, uh, you know, we did the same thing with sriracha because sriracha was, um, people don't realize it, but that hoi fung sriracha sauce is more ke- sugar than ketchup. It's terrible for you. Uh, second ingredient, sugar. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I was very passionate about it. And I actually, I mean, I love this project. I love the, the doing this because um, with the sauces, it's something kind of that encapsulates Solates the whole family. Um, you know, I've got four kids now, so family is kind of like one of the most important things for me. And you know, having a business where we're using our products in dinner time, and you know, I can bring the products with us to family meals and to parties and to have barbecues and feel like you're working because you're pitching your product. You know, is great. Um, so that's a, you know, I think we've I found something that really fits my time of life and it's a perfect business for me right now because my core customer are people like me. It's other parents out there, right? The parents with kids who want them to eat healthy but are struggling with this situation with the ketchup or the barbecue sauce. And 
<clears throat> so I understand and I work, you know, I meet other, my, I'm, I'm deep into my core customers. So I really understand them and what they're going through. So it's kind of the perfect thing for me right now. And it's just kind of a really nice fit. Definitely not a business I could have done in my 20s, but this is something that worked out. So I can see you having a lot of fun disrupting the food industry as you said about reinventing America's favorite condiments. How close is the taste to our traditional sources? I mean, that's the best part. I wouldn't be doing this if people had to uh, make a sacrifice or substitute, right? Um, like for something like ketchup, there's... Something, something especially iconic, American iconic is ketchup and the fact that kids are the main um, consumers of it. You can't get away and can't be super successful with a, a subpar version. So, um, you know, our ketchup, our, our barbecue sauce is award winning. Um, it's amazing. Um, our ketchup is incredible. Um, I mean, I can give you some examples. I was in Dallas at an event, Dallas, Texas at an event. And uh, this is not going to mean anything to people who don't understand Texas, but a bunch of moms at the event told me that our ketchup tasted just like Whataburger ketchup, which is a huge compliment if you know Texas. I don't know if you know, but Whataburger is like the McDonald's of Texas. It's like a major burger chain there. And so I've had people tell me it tastes just like Heinz or it tastes just like McDonald's ketchup. And that's kind of, those are the best compliments we get. And I, I love it because our ketchup is so clean. And so, and so healthy for you, you could like eat it on its own. Um, I mean, you know, we just use veggies as a sweetener, veggies and fruit as a sweetener. Our no sugar ketchup literally is like eating a smoothie, but it tastes just like ketchup. Um, yeah, I always tell people when I'm selling it or things like this, like it passes the five-year-old test. Um, so for something like ketchup, you have to have, and you got to figure this out for your own business. Like what is, who's the most honest customer, you know? <laughs> that isn't going to lie to you about anything. And then when it's food or a food item, it's definitely the five-year-old because the five-year-old is not going to eat something that they don't like. And if they do eat it, they're going to let you know that they do not like it. <laughs> like they, they will not spare your feelings, right? You know, a lot of people when they have startups and things like this, they're going to ask their friends and family about it and about the concept. And the problem is the friends and family usually try to spare their feelings or aren't totally honest about it or they're over, overly excited about it. You got to find that five-year-old to test your idea on, right? Or test your product on who's, you know, who's going to be blatantly honest with you. Um, so when the five-year-old's licking our ketchup off the plate, then you know, you know, we, we did something right. You're on to a winner. <clears throat> right. So what channels have you used to launch, market, and sell true made food products? Uh, we've been all over the place. The, um, I mean, the core was we went just like core retail. Um, you know, we started out, um, I mean, I'm in the Washington DC metro area. I kind of started out in New York because I thought it would be a better market. It's close enough. Um, you know, bigger, um, less price sensitive, and uh, there's a lot more small stores that you can get into. Um, when you're starting a new retail, um, item, the key is like trying to find those smaller kind of mom and pop chains that will bring you in that don't, you know, charge you money to come in and they, are quicker to make decisions about testing things out and it's easier to test your product out there. So you try to find those to get started. And then <clears throat> the key is to build regionally from there. And we, I made them this mistake too early on because we didn't have a good go to market strategy. I was just ready to like go as fast as possible, as quickly as possible. And, um, we spread ourselves out too much when the product wasn't ready. And so then we had to come back in and reassess and start building regionally and really just start building on the East coast of America. And so just being patient and trying to get those accounts on the East coast, you know, so that we can build 
um, some brand awareness in that area where people are, are, are all shopping at the same stores. Um, and that um, allowed us to then to keep iterating on the, um, and also because when you're close, being close, to, uh, key in food and in retail is being close to your stores. Um, and because when something goes wrong, you can be there quickly, right? To help make sure or find out why it's going wrong. You know, if you start, if you live in New York and you start, your first stores are in California, you're going to be in trouble because when <clears throat> the stuff's not selling, it's really hard for you to get there and do something about it. Right. Um, <clears throat> so that was key. That gave us time to figure it out and to really keep the product moving um, while we were trying to figure out uh, labeling and how to get the, the branding right, like this, which we're still working on. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, now these days I would tell, I mean, things have changed just in the past four years, but now I would tell almost all startups just to go on Amazon first, um, go e-commerce first. It's, it's not as easy as people make it out to be or think it is. Um, it's, Amazon is not a great discovery platform, but it's very forgiving in the fact that you can um, uh, market to get people there and you can test your ideas and test your labels and test your call-outs to see what gets people to sell, what gets people buying it. Um, you know, if you're, if you're a cheap, heavy product, it's a terrible business model. So like ketchup and barbecue sauce are never going to be big on e-commerce because, you know, it's, 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 um, they're not expensive products and they're difficult to ship. You know, if you're coffee, that's great because then you're an expensive light product. So it's perfect for e-commerce. Um, but uh, for us, that's obviously doesn't it doesn't work as well. But it's a great model for just getting it in front of people and testing it out, testing the model out because it's much less risky and much less difficult than getting into stores um, early on. And then you can test it out, and, and then once you think you really have a good product and a good following, you can start going into stores and doing that regional build. So, um, <clears throat> yeah. So, so as a coach. Yeah, as a co-founder of Trey, uh, True Made Foods, how does the organizational structure work and what is the involvement of your co-founder, Kevin Powell? Oh, um, Kevin's not with the company anymore. So okay. we, was, uh, um, we had to ask him to leave in 2016. So he lasted about a year. Um, so this is one of the things, a big learning lesson. For me, it was <clears throat> driving... One, I would recommend always having a co-founder or even two because it makes a huge difference. The more people you have who are working for equity and not for salary, um, the better your company is going to do. Now, the, the caveat to that is really hard to find good co-founders, like really, <clears throat> really, really hard um, as I'm a pure example. So I really did not want to do this on my own. I wanted to have a co-founder. And so having Kevin there was a big push for me to do this. Um and again, I think I still had a little bit of my impetuousness from the, my 30s there, and I was really anxious to make this work quickly. And so I pushed really fast early on um, to to drive this hard, and I didn't. I missed a lot of the signals early on that Kevin was not going to be a good co-founder. And uh, you, people can, a lot of people listen to podcasts, a lot of some people read blogs or follow other entrepreneurs on Twitter, and they'll all end up saying the same things. But doing it is a whole different situation, right? Um, so somebody can talk like an entrepreneur pretty well, right? Um, it doesn't take a lot to copy what other people are saying, but it's very hard to actually follow up on that and, and do the right thing. Um, 
and you, so if you have somebody who really isn't really who isn't really ready to work and pull their weight, um, you know that'll become apparent pretty quickly. But it, you got to watch what they do and not what they say. Yeah. That's the key. Um, and the worst people will just keep, you know, lying to you or you know lying to themselves the whole time. You know, and uh, there's all kinds of things that you can use. I, what I also found too with Kevin is that. There's people who can use these entrepreneurial lessons that we think that we live by, like you know, kind of a lean startup, um, as anything can be turned against you, kind of thing. Any type of theory can be turned against you, which is why it's so important not to be to be a fox and not a hedgehog, um, and not to be too locked into one way of thinking, uh, because, <clears throat> like you know, with the lean startup idea, I was a passionate lean startup type person. And then with Kevin, it would be like, as soon as something got hard, he'd be like, oh, we got to just try more things. We got to try new things. So his excuse for not following through on something would be, oh, we got to try different things. We got to, you know, we got to spread ourselves out and try different things because you don't know what's going to work. And, you know, which is part of lean startup, but not really, you know, he's really bastardizing the lean startup theory to be lazy, right? As an excuse not to follow through on stuff. And, you know. Because he'd be like, oh, we have to go visit all these stores. And then he'd be like, oh, no, that's not right. We should just you know, put things on the website. you know. And that's because he didn't want to get out and do the work of like, getting out and being with customers. And so he would you know, use these uh, theories against me you know, kind of all the time. And that um, <clears throat> took about a year to finally realize that this wasn't working and having to get him out. So that was a very difficult um, situation. But... You know, it's it's something to you know just be aware of when you start working with people is to be a little bit careful of people who just tell you what they what you think you want to hear all the time. Yeah. You know. So, how would you describe your leadership style, and what is one area that you would love to improve? Um, I I was described by a, um, a, a staff sergeant one time who worked for me as a um, a common sense leader, and I've always kind of liked that. And I think I, I'm not sure, but I, I don't try to have a leadership style. I try to be just honest and straightforward and direct about everything um, and try to make sure everybody has all the information that they need to succeed. Um, that way, you know, there's no excuses and there's no um, I didn't know type of situations and try to make sure everybody's on the same page. Um, cause I prefer, I want to work with now, I mean, in the military, you work with who you're given with, um, as an entrepreneur, you have more of a benefit of the choice and you know, the people I want to work with are kind of like the fire and forget type people. I don't want to be a manager, I'd rather be a leader type, type thing. So I want to have, you know, I want to put the systems in place, um, and let people go and do their thing and let them be amazing. Right. And make sure that you know they have the information and the tools that they can succeed to help us all succeed, um, and not waste time with crazy theories or any type of different leadership theories or anything like that. But apply what is needed for the situation at the time. You know, yeah, um, very you know moderation and everything kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so as a, as a very busy entrepreneur, what, what do you do to live an active and healthy lifestyle? Um, I think it's, uh, it's a, I mean, the joke is you can't do everything. You have to sacrifice something. And so usually it's sleep that gets sacrificed if you want to, which is the more, more 
uh, blogs coming out and medical advice coming out saying that that's a terrible idea. Um, but, um, it is, and always has kind of been sleep for me. Like I, I tend to have to wake up early if I want to work out on a regular basis and stay fit. Um, uh, <clears throat> getting up early is what I have to do, especially with kids. When you have a family, you know, that's really what you have to do. I got to get up and be in the gym and be back before everybody else is awake. Um, and so that's what I tend to do. Uh, the, and then also, you know, looking out for different ways to be smart about working out. There was a year when I did the seven minute workout every single day, every day, because how can you not find seven minutes of your day to do something? Right. <clears throat> so, and so I used that as an excuse and that got me thinking different ways about working out there where, um, so I had to change my mindset a little bit where, you know, in my twenties, I figured you would have to be in a gym lifting weights to work out. Whereas now, you know, I could work out anywhere at any time doing anything kind of thing. You could, if I got 10 minutes, I could do it in my hotel room in the morning. You know, I can do something, you know, do something. Don't just, you know, do it, do nothing. Um, and you know, so that's kind of what you have to do in, in these situations. And then of course, um, you know, there's, there's no excuse to eat bad. Right. And 90% of every, everything is, is nutrition. Right. So, um, <clears throat> working out is really important and very important and getting a high heartbeat and everything. And it's very uh, important for so many different reasons, but, um, nutrition, there's no excuse for really eating bad. Um, especially now with all this stuff about fasting, things like this, where you, um, you know, if you're on the road and for six hours and there's nothing but junk food available, you know, just don't eat like you know, fast for six hours and wait till you can get to better food. Um, till you have an access to better food, you know, don't eat the airplane food, wait till the end of the flight. Um, you'd be surprised how easy I used to think that you couldn't, I couldn't do that. I'd have to eat whatever is there. Um, and now I, you know, I'll, if there's terrible food around me, I'll just wait and wait till I can get to better food. Um, and apparently now that's actually good for you. So, <laughs> so, so that gave me the, you know, and it does, it does make you feel better. So, uh, I'm a big proponent of that, of you know, using that strategic fasting to <clears throat> make sure I'm only eating good food, and then just keeping good food around you all the time. So, like this. so uh, whole foods. Yeah, brilliant. So we all know smart people have great answers, but the best people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? When was the last time I did something for the first time? I was just in New York for two days, like straight at a, for part of the Mars, uh, Soka accelerator and, uh, which they do in Australia now too. Actually they have an Australia class, uh, Mars, you know, Mars company like the M and M's and stuff like that. They run a food accelerator and, uh, we're part of the first U S class. I think they have their first Australian class happening now too. What is the one question that you would love to solve? Uh, the one question I would love to solve, um, I think that the the balance, the, this work-life balance that everybody tries to figure out, right? Um, I'm passionate about my work. I love my work. I love getting into it and things like that. I always feel like I need to be doing more, but I also feel like I need to be more with my family so much more too. Um, again, one of the better things about my products and what I can do is it's very family-focused. The family is the core. It's the story about why I did this. 
Um, so I can, when I am with my family, I do feel like I'm almost working some, you know, helping the company sometimes. Um, but you know, it's still not the same. Like there's still some things that, you know, you need to do that are just work. I always need to travel, stuff like this. So how to figure out that work life balance and get that right. And, you know, somebody can magically tell you, you know, six hours a week with the kids is perfect, you know, to raise super healthy, happy kids then, you know, that would be great. But I don't think there is that answer, right? If that answer was out there, that would be wonderful. Yeah. But, or, you know, let you know, you know, it's, it's getting there with nutrition or working out. You, know, you got to work out three days a week, you know, out 30 minutes, get, get your heart rate up to this. But, you know, that those uh, guidelines really aren't there with how much time to spend with your loved ones, with, you know, your wife or your spouse or your, um, your partner or your, your kids or your family or friends, things like this. So, yeah, uh, yeah very good. <clears throat> At Addictive CEO, we are passionate about making a difference in people's lives. So we like to leave them with a call to action. What is one piece of advice or <laughs> call to action you would like to share with our listeners? Call to action is, um, don't get swept up and uh, saying, look for balance. The world is based on balance. Um, you know, it's moderation. It's not, um, one, people are not always right all the time, and another, you know, another group is not always wrong. You know, uh, look for context, look for balance in the world. Try to figure out what that balance is. Um, uh, though, world functions on balance the ecosystem nature functions on balance we need to function on a balance as well um, whether it's in politics or business or you know um, government versus business or you know the military you know th there's a balance in life that I think we we need to strive for more and be happy with so how can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you um, I mean, go to truemadefoods.com to learn most about what I'm doing right now. Um, uh, LinkedIn would be the best way to try to connect with me in any way, uh, shape or form. Uh, so, uh, and yeah, and hopefully I'll be responsive, but, uh, these days it's pretty hard. Um, yeah. Oh, brilliant. So Abram, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I've loved learning about your early years and your, your formative years and how food and culture was a huge part of that to then going into the military where you learned so many great skill sets that are now helping you as a leader, as a father, as an entrepreneur. And I, I like the analogy you used around um, aviate, navigate, and then communicate and utilizing that in the entrepreneurial and workspace as well. I think that is so, so important where we get caught up with all the, the shiny pieces and trying to tell people about what we're doing rather than actually doing the things that need to be done so you can survive, you can live rather, exactly. than, rather than die. So I think that's a really important um, piece that you, you discussed there. It, it's, I, I, I was really curious beforehand, before we did the interview around the true around your new company, True Made Foods, and, and what, how that kind of started around your children and, and making sure that they were healthy and kind of seeing something that they were always excited about but wasn't probably the best for them and how you've been able to transform that and to now take that to the rest of the world around we can produce the same tastes, 
experiences, but do it naturally. And I think that's so valuable. And we're gonna see, obviously we're seeing a lot more of that in the world now. So well done on really disrupting that space. Um, so thank you very much for your time today. And we look forward to seeing the continued growth and the expansion of True Made Foods in the, in the future. So thanks for your time. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Great questions. Really love being on here. On today's Active CEO Performance Tip, we're talking about CEO flow. It's the psychological state that we need to get ourselves into where we have an out-of-body experience because everything happens so effortlessly. If you've planned, prepared, and you put yourself in a state where you feel like you are living what you're about to say, then you are more likely to get into that flow state. When you're in flow, everyone engages and connects with you. They feel it, the emotion comes out, and everything just happens so smoothly. So next time you're preparing for your day, work on how you can get into that psychological state where flow and everything becomes easy and natural. Thank you for listening to a great conversation with Abraham Carmack, Leadership Lessons from the Sky on episode 68 of the Active CEO podcast. Christmas is here already, and is it a time for many people, families, and cultures around the world to come together and spend quality time with each other. As a leader, it can be quite lonely as you're responsible for people, ideas, livelihoods, and the future. Spending time with family and friends away from the work environment provides a great opportunity to bring perspective to your life and realize that you are not alone and it is okay to be vulnerable. How will you overcome CEO loneliness in 2020? For me, 2019 was a year of exploration and discovery. Valuable time spent clarifying what high performance really means to CEOs and leaders. Putting pen to paper in writing Breaking the CEO Code. Developing frameworks in wellness and performance for high performance coaches and staff in sport. Taking communication and influence to a whole new level with Speakers Institute and creating content is both valuable and really matters to you. 2020 is a year of focus, taking what was learned in 2019, focusing on what will make a difference in your lives as a high-performing leader, and delivering with clarity and certainty. If you need someone on your side to help you provide clarity and certainty, then contact Craig Johns at Craig at nrg the number two perform.com or click on the contact page of the www.nrg number two perform.com website this is the active ceo podcast where the ordinary don't belong join the active ceo movement by visiting www.nrg to perform.com that's N-R-G number two perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions 
and connect with us on the NRG to Perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.